But now we don't have any value. The death sentence molecule. Uh, yeah, the, we um, we the have a table uh, parasocial relationship. We have a, a we all have tabletop simulator, and we open that up, and we boot up our inscrutable board games, and then we suck each other off for two hours. Yeah, um, if you have ever listened to this podcast, we are married now. That's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you have to play board games with us. It's a whole extended thing. We're all German Movians. Do they still call themselves that? Oh, yeah. They, they call themselves that. Oh, yeah. I hate that. Uh, you have to play 40k with us, and we only play Custodes. <laughs> yeah. Just I, pure were we, boys. Were yeah. we all in the group that, uh, like, group of people globally who liked Doctor Who, and then it happened? What happened? No. I, I've, I've um, never liked Doctor Who. Never? Yeah. You're British. No. Yeah, I, I'm I'm <laughs> a neurodivergent. I know I'm I'm like the the yeah pure, right the um yeah target market for Doctor Who. Yeah, never liked Doctor Who. I don't know. My my parents brought they had like old taped like VHS recorded episodes of like the Tom Baker Doctor Who, and then uh, then it redebuted, and I was like, oh sick, it's coming back. And I watched I think three episodes, and I went, I hate this. Oh, this is not gonna go well, is it? And it didn't. <laughs> oh no, yeah. I, I, a bunch of my friends are um, uh, both intelligent Marxist scholars and also big Doctor Who fans. Um, They're British, aren't they? Yeah. So no, no not all. Not all. There's <laughs> uh, some, some American crossover there, but um, yeah, I, I just don't like Doctor Who. It, it if it, it's got that thing like, but which Grant Morrison's comics have, but it's charming when he does it. And it's hard, charming when Hideo Kojima does it, of just like having a bunch of ideas, putting them all together, and then that's the show. And when Doctor Who, when it's in a Doctor Who episode, it just does not work because that just I can, I can doesn't work. That. Yeah, it's especially when, bad in the new ones. Remember when we used to open this podcast with like "Welcome to Your Death Sentence" or whatever? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We evolved. It, it's it's more parasocial this way. Yeah. Ah. Yeah. Which is just, just mid, mid conversation. There yeah. was that time that we opened it by talking about um the Grinch and how he has a dog yeah. penis, a blunted dog penis, but it's furry along the whole shaft. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. Cool. So we're gonna talk um, about Dalgren today, aren't we? <laughs> I was gonna say, speaking of the Grinch, uh, Samuel Delaney. Um he's, he's a Grinch like he does I, seem he yeah, looks actually. a little bit like the Grinch. Like Jim Jim Carrey Grinch. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Saying not lovingly, to be clear. Hmm. Yeah. So, man, this episode is going to be pure chaos. Um, <laughs> yeah. We are here to talk about Samuel Delaney's Dalgren, um, arguably one of science fiction's most famous books uh, for all the wrong reasons. That is, it's one of those books you might find mentioned in the same breath as Infinite Jest. Gravity's Rainbow. Um, I'm not. I'm gonna say it. Finnegan's Wake. Oh, um, yeah. There it goes. Yeah. Uh, and for, I mean, partly justified reasons, right? It is uh, sprawling and experimental and postmodern and so on. Uh, but I think it's actually better than all of those books. 
Especially you in do Finnegan's not. Wake, Langdon. Shut the fuck up. <laughs> Shut the fuck you think up. It's Finnegan's Wake. Like, okay, I can, I can. No, I can't even like. Okay, Infinite Jest, fine. I can. I yeah. can see. Not Gravity's Rainbow and Finnegan's Wake. I yeah, I don't it, think it's better than Gravity's Rainbow. It, it, it's on the same level as Gravity's Rainbow, maybe. I, 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 I can see that. I can see, like, they, they hang out together at a party. Um, yeah. Well, it, this is not the Dr. Aldrin. It's like, it's... Yeah, we're not doing like, a tier list of great uh, modernist <laughs> slash postmodernist literature. Yeah, at least one of us is correct on this um, <laughs> podcast. Um, yeah, so Dalgren, let's do the, like, um, mechanical <laughs> details. <laughs> Let's do Samuel Delaney first. Samuel oh, sure. R. Delaney, because I, I, I filled my head with Samuel R. Delaney knowledge uh, before we started. So I'm ready, I'm ready to spit. I got, I'm ready to go. Sure. So, Frank, uh, yeah, born, brother. Born 1942. Uh, he, prefer, he goes by Chip uh, rather than Samuel R. Delaney. Um, he's, very, he's weirdly active on Twitter for like a 90-something-year-old. He's also still writing. Um he had a book out last year that was serialized in like a, like a small university press. Um, so he started out in the 1960s and 70s at kind of like the transitional point in science fiction between like the Golden and Silver Ages. Um, so you're here talked about in the same breath as um, Philip K. Dick and um, Ursula K. Le Guin, people like that, rather than the earlier guys, you know, you know Isaac Asimov's and so on, but he's he he goes to some more weirder places than those guys. He's he's got a great uh, backlog of between like nineteen sixty two and uh, maybe even into the eighties of just like really great, solid, thoughtful science fiction books that are um, pretty close to something like J.G. Ballard than um, I don't know Orson Scott Card or someone. Um, stuff like Babel 17, Nova, The Towers of Tauron, you know, stuff that you can tell was like uh, titled by the editors at some kind some science fiction <laughs> publisher. You know, Ace Books, Ace Doubleday, people like that. But so, I think uh, he also published a, a charming book called The Tides of Lust in 1973. Um, he wanted that to be called Equinox. But uh, then it was called the Tides of Lust, uh, and he's that's been... a way better name. <laughs> Tides of Lust. <laughs> of lust? I mean, yeah, it, it has a really, really great cover. You look just... at that and you go, "Damn, okay, I'll read that." Like, <laughs> oh yeah, it is a um, an adventure into the sexual unknown. And a couple of years after that, Dalgren comes out, uh, and. One of the interesting things is he was writing Dahlgren at the same time he was writing a book called Hog. Uh, that only came out in 1995 because if it came out in 1975, he would have probably been hung because Hog is one of the most extreme books ever written. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> It goes places. If you like uh, Dennis Cooper, then Hog would probably make you throw up. It's really, it really goes there. And he was writing this like intermittently with Dahlgren. He was like a page of one, page of the other. Um, and there's some weird um, coincidence, not coincidence, obviously, because he put them there. Um, there's some weird um, overlaps. overlaps. Yeah. yeah. Like Hog from Hog and the kid from Dahlgren both wear one shoe. What does it yeah. mean? Who knows? Uh, and he, that was like his big book of the 90s. 
and he kind of did a lot of stuff on small presses until Through the Valley of the Nest of Spiders, which is probably maybe his, along with Dahlgren, his like big masterpiece. It's like a queer black utopia book. It came out in 2012. It's really brilliant. And he's yeah, still, it, yeah, still that, working on it. That, that, was, that was a huge book when it came out. That was sort of like he'd... So he has a, a bit of controversy to him, not just with the literature stuff. There's also... Um, he, like Allen Ginsberg and some other people was, um, a supporter, but not a member of, or he said supportive comments about Nambla, the quite literally real <laughs> North American man, boy, love association. It feels like a too comedically on the nose, offensive name for a group yeah, to be I, real, I, but it is. I first heard he, about Nambla in South Park and I thought same, it was a joke for like at least a decade. Same. Now, the the history of that is it's similar to when the French critical theorists signed that really awful fucking open letter about age of consent and how they opposed it. If you hear the reasoning that they gave, you go, okay, well, that was a bad idea, but I get your reasoning. And I think maybe in the modern day, you do a different thing. And credit to Delaney, um, his, his queer activism has taken a radically different shape over the past several decades. Um, a lot of the historical reasons why certain people supported that group was, especially from the 50s into the 70s, the amount of openly pro-queer activist groups who would, like, openly claim defending queerness was very, very limited. And the amount that had any kind of leverage was even more limited. And so there was sort of a sense of, like, we all have to band together. Now, obviously... Um, you don't really need to band together with every single kind of person like the people who promote, you know, pederasty. Um, but I say that to sort of address if someone's aware of that. Um, we didn't want to just skip past that without any mention, but there are at least one, he never joined. And two, the fact that all of his, he he's a queer black man and all of his queer activism has, been in far more acceptable directions i'd say mm. for the past several decades so it's yeah yeah that, that was a weird time in the 70s where that was a thing yeah i think for a another, another story in the same vein that i love is that he actually wrote two issues of wonder woman i was gonna say yeah and yeah. that was during the the weird phase in the 70s where wonder woman didn't have powers and she was like a super spy yeah, yeah. it fucking and ruled then, and then um, Gloria Steinem got involved and in very like second wave feminism uh, sort of vibe led like a massive lobbying effort to get DC to give Wonder Woman her powers back. Um, <laughs> and because of that, Delaney's arc was, um, was actually short. snipped, cut short. But the final battle was supposed to be over um, an abortion clinic. Um, and that, that sort of like Never happened. So you got to understand that I think more context to this, as um, Gareth mentioned, he was writing in that sort of Bay Area clique of sci-fi writers. So he knew Ursula Le Guin and Philip K. Dick and Damon Knight and all those people. And it was the 60s and the 70s on the West Coast, right? Like, So he lived most of his life, I think, in um, 
New York and London, but he also spent a lot of time in San Francisco. Um, so he was there for like, you know, the student rebellion of 68 and, and all those, um, you know, historical events and his literature was very much, you know, beatnik in many ways and hippie and others and just part of that sort of like radical counterculture. Mm. Yeah. I wonder if any of that comes up in Dahlgren. I wonder. Oh, it yeah. would be so interesting if it did. Yeah. One of the most <laughs> interesting quotes um, in this context, I don't know if I have the the full quote, but um, Algis Budris, one of the most important writers and more, even more so editors of science fiction um, put him in the same category as J.G. Ballard, Brian Aldiss, and Roger Zelezny as, and he called them an earth-shaking new kind of writer. Right, So that's kind of like the literary context in which Delaney should be um, understood. Hmm. Yeah. Um, unlike most of these guys, he's still here and he's still working. Yeah. I think the, for me... Wow, I love the internet. I actually found like a screenshot of the publication where Budris says this, which is phenomenal. Um, yeah, I think out of all of those, the most justified comparison as far as style would be Ballard. Mm-hmm. And I think Dalgren is probably the most Ballardian um, Delaney book, right? Easily. Yeah. I think if you if you slapped his name on the cover and said by the amazing author of the atrocity exhibition, you could easily pass this off as a Ballard book. Well, you have to like set Definitely. it in like a suburb of London that no one's heard of. <laughs> or, or like um, an interstate. Anyway, um, Dahlgren, oh, the yeah. book, 1975. Um, I mean, I want to say that we're going to spoil the book, but nothing happens in the book. <laughs> Let's say uh, the plot. What if a city was so fucked up? It's so fucked up. So the city <laughs> um, is called Bologna. Bologna? No, Bologna. Um, and it might be, I've heard Chicago, I've heard Detroit. Um the, the I've also really... heard like Kansas City, like something that would be like in the dead center of America. Yeah, um, I, I, I like mentally think it's in the Midwest somewhere. Yeah, I have no I justification for that. Um, so Bologna was again hinted at. Only there's not a lot of like world building in this book. Um, perhaps targeted by some sort of weapon or some other technological device. And it has been shattered um, across several axes, whether those be time, space, meaning, and so on. Um, And our unreliable narrator, no, no, more unreliable than that, than whatever you're imagining, um, the kid, supposedly his name, clearly suffers from some sort of mental illness. amongst the symptoms of which is amnesia, sort of uh, stumbles into Bologna and proceeds to um, do nothing. <laughs> uh, sort of wander around. Um, for, for like the first half of the book, he he wanders around and there's some like vague world building. In the second half of the book, you 
really it's a masterclass on how you do nothing for like 300 pages oh yeah, yeah. The, the second half is just there's I, I, nothing there it's like a vague mist of a book but also brilliant yep um along the way he meets the denizens of Bologna and has sex with almost all of them um <laughs> again uh displaying delaney's propensity also in his own life i, I don't know how he defines himself but by uh, in a way he defines himself as gay like that's the yeah. word he uses about himself um, he has been married to a woman and that woman yeah. was a lesbian i think it was some sort of marriage of convenience some i'm not sure i want to speak for him on that part yeah. um he's supposedly had upwards of like three thousand sexual partners and he details a lot of that in times square red and times square blue which would be his like um autobiographical novels of like hustling in new york um friend of the show um i forgot his bloody name now <laughs> a friend of the show has <laughs> uh, done a good youtube video which i'll link to in the um description about the um his kind of autobiographical queer hustle in uh books yeah um but in in the book at least uh the narrator does not discriminate let's put it like that between the <laughs> sexes genders and sexual orientations yes like, uh he's attracted to hot people yeah yeah we don't know if his... these people are hot it was the 60s people looked weird back then that's true i've seen the Ooh. woodstock movie <laughs> suck it boomers <laughs> <laughs> um although there is at least one character um that is explicitly called out as hot uh what's her name um the woman who plays the harmonica uh lania um who i mean specifically she's described as having great boobs uh, yeah i was about to say like um, there's like, a line about how she has cool jugs yeah. um <laughs> she's wow. also one of the constant lovers of of the kid and in general one of the main characters that end up um escorting the kid through the city um a bunch of other stuff happens like an astronaut shows up um there's a guy who publishes a newspaper in random dates uh poets m- murderers uh gangs uh thieves psychotherapists and many oh artichoke artichoke uh, uh growers very important mm-hmm. it's- um it's impossible to overstate, I think. This is me speaking almost directly to Gareth and Gareth alone. <laughs> How if you're if you're a big fan of Grant Morrison's comic work and especially the kind <laughs> of ranginess and the kinds of the kinds of narrative threads that they pull out in their work, um, it is impossible to read this and not think of it as like, God, this should have been a morrison scripted vertigo comic in the late 80s or very early 90s or maybe like a milligan comic the the guy who did shade the changing man um Mm. like the direct line of inheritance like in terms of literary form and literary content uh and the experimentalism as well is like it's a one-to-one yeah you know i i I never thought of uh, this in in terms of grant morrison for some reason i i, I feel for things and other things like but well i mean it's not a billion miles away like jg ballard and yeah. uh, michael Moorcock and so on but i never thought of it specifically in a morrisonian 
context? I think for me, I, I can't help but do that because I discovered this novel in college around the same time that I was first diving really deep into that um, early Vertigo stuff. I was finally reading really the, the deeper cuts of Alan Moore, like Albion and um, uh, his um, the 80s stuff before he picked up Swamp Thing. Um <laughs> Stuff like that. So, like, it's hard for me to not see the direct connection. And especially if you read interviews with those writers, when you're asked, like, why did you do groundbreaking psychedelic work in the loosely science fantasy world of comic books, they cite people like like Delaney, where it's like you read a book in the literary world that rocks your ass back, and you go, oh, shit, why don't I do that? Um... Which is funny because it's a completely different lineage than Delaney himself had, which was similar to, we've talked about this on the other new wave of um, science fiction episodes that we've done, where for a lot of them, their movement came from a very obvious sense of frustration with the limits of their genre, where it's like you grow up loving science fiction and there's a kind of feeling to fantasy and science fiction that's hard to it's hard to get that in literary work. Not that literary work's yeah. failing to do it, it's just it's hard to do that. And then they start looking around at the reason why it gets cited next to people like um, the, the Pinchon and stuff like that is you read a book like Gravity's Rainbow, which is kind of science fiction-y in bits, and you go, you know what, fuck it, I am going to write a sick-ass book. Um, <laughs> I think if we go a few steps back in that lineage, I think... One of my favorite things about Delgren is that it's one of the best examples of how science fiction interacted and continues to interact with the intellectual and literary movements of its time, right? Because yeah. there's this idea or a lack of an idea where people read science fiction in a vacuum, right? They <laughs> think it's its own thing. It's divorced from the rest of the literature and art that's being made. And that is, of course, nonsense because no art is divorced of the context in which it's made. And then with Delgren, like, this is, if you, I mean, I guess it would be torture for him, but if you closed Frederick Jameson in a room and forced him <laughs> to write a sci-fi book, <laughs> this is what it might look like, right? Um, it's just so good at taking all of the things that were happening in the 70s, um, you know, the proliferation of uh, postmodernist thought, the obsession with um, urbanity and its decline, the you know, the, the rise, well, the beginnings of the rise of, of, of neoliberalism and, and the um, continued solidification of the post-war American empire and stuff like that. It just does a really good job of writing it down. And it's all, guys, it all, it all what's up? Guys, I'm going to say it. No, don't say it. Oh, he's going to say it. This, this book is delusion. I've done it. Yeah, you did it. I, mean, um, it I did it. I opened, I cracked the egg. So, well, the egg, which is a body without organs. Um, That's right. <laughs> to, but yes, but I'll get to Deleuze in a second. Um, <laughs> it's almost like, you know, when I, when I was reading this book now for the second time, it kept for some reason bringing me back to um, Philip K. Dick's uh, Dr. Blood Money. I can um, see that. There's something about it's like one of the ones I very few that I haven't read. 
Yeah, he has written written like sixty books, so that's yeah. <laughs> it's fine yeah. to have a couple that you've. Missed. I mean, I probably wrote old... like fifty-seven of those. So, yeah, I'm also like, uh, I'm gonna say it, a huge fan of Dick. Um, I fucking love hey, Dick. Well, <laughs> um, so, Blood Money. I mean, interestingly enough, Blood Money was written in sixty-five, but set in seventy-two, um, and it's one of. I mean, it's funny to say it's one of Dick's weirdest books because all of his books are fucking weird. <laughs> um, but it literally has like a a, a psychic baby uh, that floats around <laughs> and destroys the planet or threatens to destroy the planet. Um, but there's a lot of that kind of like American myth-making sort of that Del Grand does as well. But it's it's almost like a more, like a grim, dark version of, of Philip K. Dick's weirdness, right? It's way more depressing and... Um, monochrome, you know, Bellona is destroyed and and the, most of the um, descriptions are to do with shadow and darkness and how it pulls and stuff like that. So, yeah, that's the kind of like the literary context in which I at least placed um, Delgren. It's, this is something where Delaney obviously couldn't have meant this because the chronology doesn't work, but one of the reasons why we're doing this now and one of the reasons why we teased it when we did is in nearly every formal way, Dahlgren forms a kind of antipodal node on a helix with Book of the New Sun, where the, it feels like they orbit around each other, never touching, but also never really departing. So um, I think... No, sorry, go ahead. I have a thing to say about Stockchills, but... The, a lot of it has to do with there's certain there's certain formal conceits like an implied an implied loop that are taken obviously in different directions but there's sort of the implied loop there there's also the sense of questioning of what the order is one is there a natural order two what is that order three sort of epistemological questions as well like book of the new sun posits that the order is perhaps unknowable but is a buried kind of knowledge that it is a real thing that can be known but whether a person can know it is a different kind of question whether you can know it chronologically or maybe you need to view the world through different lenses in order to know it so that's its own question versus dahlgren which has a it doesn't present that you can't no, Bologna. It presents more something almost like House of Leaves, where it's like it's a shifting, it's a shifting labyrinth. So, of... so this is where I I jump in and I say that I actually I, I disagree with that last sentence. I think that's exactly the difference between Dalgren and Book of the New Sun. And I'm gonna say something big now. Book of the New Sun is is Gnostic, right? Yes. It's it says there is knowledge, but it exists beyond the shattered lie of, of the surface level world, whereas Delgrens is nihilistic. It does say that Bellona is, is unknowable, not because Bellona itself is broken, but because the people who attempt to know it are broken, right? That's, that's why it, it's postmodern in the sense that it says it's not that the world is postmodern. It's not that there's anything in in reality that is postmodern, which by the way is the mistake that conservatives who have never read postmodernism make, that postmodernism is like yeah. a, a descriptive sort of thing, which 
says that this is how reality works. Instead, it says we are postmodern, right? Like our ability to make sense of signs, our ability to speak, our ability to convey meaning and make sense of the world is so mediated and so fractured that we no longer are able to come into contact with um, anything that could be called true knowledge or objective knowledge. And What's funny of- is a lot of that notion even can date back to someone like Plato, like where sort of the more sophisticated interpretation of the quote of like the wise man knows that he knows nothing. There are a bunch of really whack-ass and corny ways to interpret that, but the way that it's sort of implied to be intended within um within that text what the fuck just hit my apartment whatever um, <laughs> i was like it sounded like a bomb went off that was weird um i'm just too wise uh but one of the more sophisticated ways to interpret that is the more that you add new valences and um I'm trying to say this in a normal way. If you imagine any given thought or narrative you learn about the world as being kind of a vector in physics terminology, like there's a direction to it and an amount of force in that direction, the more vec- the more you learn, the more vectors you're adding, the more you lose a clear sense of coherence about what direction everything is pointed. How, you know, how, how far is it moving there? And... But- this is sort of one of the meta tasks of philosophy is an attempt to beat that problem back to provide clarity to cut through that noise, but it's it's it, it it's a haunting problem that threat of if I learn too much, may the world become more confusing rather than less confusing is sort of always an ever present thing, and the acceleration that drives something like postmodernism is basically when that comes true. I think, you know, it's not an accident that Dalgren takes place in a city. I mean, you, you brought up Plato, and of course, the Republic yep. is mostly um, about city-states. But I think you're being too charitable to Plato. I think Plato was a coward. <laughs> I'm um, definitely being too... We are not Plato fans here. Yeah, I'm making I, use of Plato. I'm not defending Plato. For sure. <laughs> I'm just saying that what Delaney is trying to say is that you know, all of the attempts to bring order to the unordered are uh, futile and cowardly because they attempt to um, obscure the fact that this order is completely artificial. Instead of embracing that artificial nature and trying to um, come to terms with it, it objectifies uh, that structure and tries to claim that it is external to um, humanity. I mean, look at look at Calkins, right? Who runs the newspaper. On on one hand, you could say, oh, he's an agent of chaos himself because he chooses to publish his newspaper in random dates. Like for the listeners, when you read Al Grand, there are like snippets from newspapers and they keep being dated these weird things. Some of them happened like the end of time, some of them happened in the past, some of them happen in Bellona's contemporary uh, time, whenever that might be, because we don't know. <laughs> Like it keeps going back and forth on when exactly it's happening. But if you think about it, he he's why enforce a date system at all? Like if time yeah. is fractured, no one can make sense of it, then Calkin's efforts to put any sort of scale, however confused it might be, can be read as him trying to control the situation. And and that brings me to I think the most important point, 
it's not a loop. Okay, Dalgren is not a spiral. It doesn't actually recur. And uh, Delaney himself, by the way, writing under um, a, a pseudonym, um, K. Leslie Steiner, that's one of his like pen names, um, wrote like a critique of Dalgren, supposedly like another person, where he absolutely railed at everyone comparing it to Finnegan's Wake. Um, saying that, A, he had not read Finnegan's Wake when he wrote Algren, um, and that, B, it's, it's, it's not a loop. So when you look at it, when you look at the book, it's tempting to call it a loop, right? It starts with, to wound the autumnal city, and it ends with, I have come to, right? But if you think, if you, if you read it carefully, those two lines don't actually um, feed into each other. Because if you put them together, you get, I have come to, to wound the autumnal city. There's a, there's a, um, a hiccup a, that would happen. A, a hiccup, exactly. Now, it, so what structure is it? If, if it's not a loop and it doesn't close in on itself, then what sort of structure could we use to describe it? And I kind of had this idea when I was reading it for the second time that it's chiral, Right. Um, chirality is for, from the Greek um, objects that are uh, mirror images of each other but that cannot be turned in any way to perfectly um, sit on each other. For example, your hands. Yeah. Right? Um, now, anyone who's played Death Stranding knows uh, all uh, about chirality. Yeah. I was going to make the, gonna... <laughs> the Death Stranding <laughs> connection, which I think is might not be an accident. So, in Dalgren, one of the things that happen to the kid constantly is that he confuses right and left. For example, he hides um, the orchid, which is this construction of knives that he wears on his potentially left, potentially right hand, and he hides it to the left of the entryway to um, Laufer's apartment. But then when he has to run from the apartment because Laufer wakes up with red eyes, by the way, never explained in the book, like why people just suddenly have red eyes. Could be a plague, by the way. We also need to talk about the plague angle. Um, he runs outside and the orchid is on the right. Not only is it on the right, it also appears in his hand, but everything is flipped. Likewise, the notebook supposedly has the right side written when the kid finds it, and the notebook is his own thoughts and notes which appear in the book, and the left hand is blank, but then it shifts throughout the book. Likewise, and the, yeah, the right hand side of the notebook is is kind of like is the novel Dal Dalgren itself, but slightly skewed. Yeah, just so, like so what's happening is that when we read the book, and of course. Delaney doesn't tell us when this happens because that would be easy. We are shifting between two chiral versions. So, for example, the woman that he sleeps with in the beginning of the book and um, Lania have a scratch on their thigh. They are the same woman, but viewed through the chiral difference between the versions. Now, if you try to overlap Lania over this other woman and do like a Book of the New Sun thing, right? Where you try to decode, the, the messages are all trying to lead you towards some sort of revealed meaning. 
you don't reach that meaning because it's chiral, because one finger does not necessarily lead to its counterpart. You end up at this dead end where things don't quite make sense and don't quite sit on top of each other. And, now, and, one and thing, that, yeah, one thing that is funny is in the final chapter, you do actually have at one point the line, I have come to to wound the autumnal city appear, yeah. like written that way, um, <clears throat> which to an unsophisticated reader would low, throw a wrench into the view of of this as not quite being a loop. But we get the impl something that Gareth brought up also sort of um, fixes that question of like, well, you know, the text at some point does provide a loop in point that would have the exact same line hiccup included. But the fact that they find Dahlgren as written and it's it's I forget whether it's said or just implied that it's in the handwriting of the kid, um, but the lines are all different. They're subtly different, but they are different, um, mm. which indicates that at the very best, what we could expect, and I don't think it's this, but at the very best, we have less a, a closed loop, which would be like a circle, and, some, and at best something more like a spiral, where every time it comes back to a parallel point, it is a slight variation on that point. And so the cutoff at the beginning is this is us seeing this pass through and it ends at the cutoff point where it would have picked up again, but with more differences. And perhaps that kid would find a book that has our actual opening in it, mm. but he would have remembered it slight, even yeah. more slightly he differently. Would, he would see that on the left-hand pages of the diary and that would be our Dalgren that we read. Yes, and this but sort I of leads because... into the kind of... That's at the very best. I'm not saying that that's what's happening because yeah, yeah, yeah. I think what this. What, I'm also not going to argue with you about shapes, right? That's it's yeah. not the point. What this ultimately points to is if we had to create a kind of mapping, everyone knows I'm a big fan of uh, mapping of non physical objects. Ooh, ooh, I love it. Um, that's the Lacanian in me coming out. Just draw me some nonsense charts, baby. Um, unfortunate, unfortunate Lacanian. Yes, that's right. Um, is if something like Book of the New Sun could be imagined as a fairly tight spiral, and the question is where on the spiral are you, but it is ultimately kind of a spiral. This feels more like a ball of yarn, or like a tangled headphone, like, like you know, you put, you put earbuds in your pocket for a while and then pull them out, and the shape of Dahlgren becomes closer to that, which gets it what I mean when I say that it's Deleuzian in the sense of it leans into the schizotypal um, analytic that is presented. <laughs> Surprise readers, I'm now actually going to reference anti-Oedipus uh, instead of, and capitalism and schizophrenia, instead of all of the other Deleuze stuff. It's finally happened. Um, but this picks up that kind of thread, which was deliberately Deleuze and Guattari riffing on the stuff that Jameson was talking about in postmodernism. Like the whole thrust that is missed sometimes by people in uh, that two-volume work is them basically trying to piggyback off of um, postmodernism and go like, let's, let's extend this thought. Postmodernism or the logic of late capitalism 
is written coherently about incoherence, but what if we attempted to map that incoherence on its own terms? And that's where my thoughts about the novel start syncing up a lot more with with Eden, that he uses he uses that chiral form to make literal and make immediate that sense of almost like the schizotypal psychomap of perceiving the world. Not of the world itself, but of perceiving the world. I think what all this boils down to is a recommendation on <laughs> how to read Dalgren. When we did the Book of the New Sun, I think we quoted, I don't remember if it was Bolsky or someone else, that said that you should read it um, not too fast, so that you get all of the um, hints and intentions, but also not too slow that you use, or was it Neil Gaiman in the introduction? One of them. Um, One of them. Yeah. Um, or don't read too slow so that you don't lose the actual like aesthetic and literary pace of it. Whereas with Dalgren, it's kind of like reading, yeah, Infinite Jest or, or Gravity's Rainbow, right? Not, well, first of all, not every hint or um, line of reasoning is even worth pursuing because some of them end with nothing. And then secondly, um, you shouldn't try to make sense of everything because it's not supposed to coalesce into um, something that you can sort out. And that, that, going back to the differences between the books, that is the big difference between yeah. this and the Book of the New Sun. Nothing in the Book of the New Sun is meaningless. Everything is injected with meaning. That's why Gene Wolfe wasn't a postmodernist, right? Yeah. He was very much about knowing and discovering and the truth. Whereas with Dalgren, the point, the static, the noise, the gray areas are the point. The point is that Bellona does not coalesce. <coughs> it does not explain itself. There is no intent or meaning to many of the things that happen now. Like, he's very much what the question of does Bolt trying to order this thought. The closest hint we get at when this is really taking place, imagine scare quotes around this, um, is in fact 1975, the year of release of the book. There's a couple statements very early on that would sync up with hit the kid having arrived in 1975 at more or less the time the book is released. Um, obviously this throws a couple weird textures. And if you're trying to think critically about the book, actually, no, let me, let me rephrase that. There isn't a couple weird wrinkles. If you're trying to think within the logic of just the text, um, but not so much if you're thinking in the literary logic of the text. If you're thinking about the book, it makes a huge amount of thematic sense because that notion immediately gets fractured. Like there's implications that the kid might be 90 or a teenager or in his 20s. Um, and when I say implications, I mean sort of blunt statements where it's like, mm -hmm. oh, I remember that. They're like, that was 100 years ago. What the fuck? Um, likewise... Uh, the sort of uh, the fractured chronology of the newspaper, there's at times subtle implications that he's not necessarily making up the date, that maybe Bologna is experiencing time in this pinballing way and the newspapers are accurate. Um, 
Because on the thematic end, the question of if it takes place at the time of release of the book, Bologna isn't, there's a question of, is Bologna real then? The question of like, what city would we map it onto? They make pretty goddamn well clear it doesn't map onto a city. It is Bologna, but Bologna has been made, they say this explicitly, Bologna's been made unknowable to people outside of Bologna by whatever happened to it. Um, and so it has become, this is the part that's very um, Alan Moore, Grant Morrison-esque. It's become this palimpsested hyper-sigil of America, or capital T, the city. Specific, um, like Specifically at that time in 1975, like the post-post-post-civil um, rights and hippies yeah. and stuff, which... And, race and race riots are a big 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 part of this when you think about psychogeography in the sort of very um pseudoscientific way it exists to try to explain a real psychological phenomenon which is the sort of the confusion of life in the city um the kind of thing that there's been an eternal tension between people who live in cities and people who live outside of them that is rendered inscrutable on either side. Um, I'm not attempting to solve that now, but this is clearly very invested in the way of like, there's even the subtle question that pervades basically all of history. This goes back to fucking Roman stuff too, of is the image of life in the city an accurate image of life during the times, or is it just hyper-localized to the conditions of the city? Does it tell us about the human condition, or does it tell us about the urban condition alone? Um, and as we've said before, this is less interested in pursuing the truth as much as laying out the question and maybe striking out a bunch of different things. Um, because as, as Eden was saying, that's sort of the big pivot between something like this or something like Book of the New Sun is the form is very much the same, but the epistemological position is the exact inverse. And that's sort of what I meant before by like, they orbit around each other, but don't touch. Like, I feel like you get a better mental image of some unnamed central thing by having both this and book of the new sun in your head, because it kind of perfectly outlines the depth of the epistemological problems of let's say like, how do you navigate what the truth is in the social media age when you can get a million different counter narratives and many, if not all of them have some factual basis to them. Like you're looking at real screenshots, you're looking at real bits of data, real numbers, but all of these narratives point in different directions. The whole sort of condition of the post, um, liberals would call it the post-Trump era, but it's been around for way longer than that, hovers around these same kinds of questions. And we sort of hit this position where neither an abstract trust in, quote, the truth or a nihilistic rejection of truth as value seems to actually provide any kind of pathway forward. Like it's, we require a more sophisticated and subtle kind of weapon than either kind of um, rather obvious ones. 
which is just, I don't know, it's a really curious problem. And it's satisfying that Dahlgren also, <clears throat> the text is very nihilistic, but it I don't think it's attempting to prompt people towards that. I think it's more presenting this I, snared problem and just very bravely yeah. isn't isn't pretending to a solution it doesn't have. I think I, I very much agree with that also because it doesn't fall into the trap of presenting the, the postmodern confused state as something romantic that is to yeah. be aspired to. Like the kid rails against his situation multiple times, right? Um, and it, a lot of it condenses into his desire to be healthy, right? to, to find um, stability. Right, um, like I'm, I'm, I'm quoting from, from the book, what we know as real is burned away at invisible heat. What we are concerned with is more insubstantial. I do not know. It is simple as that. For the hundredth time, I do not know and cannot remember. I do not want to be sick again. I do not want to be sick. Like there's these heart-wrenching places where the narrator, the kid, makes sure that we understand that none of this is romantic or to be aspired to or poetic in any way like he is suffering this is this is bad it reminds um, me of kind of the problem of howl which um should fair be fairly well stated sort of that's sort of been an invisible specter that we haven't named while talking about this but it's i think impossible to have read howl and know the literary esteem of howl and then read this and know that they both were active queer writers who there is a period of like overlap where they almost certainly could have met each other and think that there is no amount of influence of that in here. I think that's sort of, it's almost too obvious to need to be said, but when thinking about Howell, the same problem comes up because Howell is very, very, very savagely beautiful, very, very deeply postmodern about the confusion of desire and especially something like homosexual desire in 1950s America of something primal and human, but also it's been made monstrous and, you know, all these different things. Sometimes people will focus on the liberatory savage beauty of Howell, which is very much there. And the same things here, this book is very, very, beautiful and liberatory and savage but but the poem's fucking named howl like it's not he's not hiding the feeling that is generating this which is one of like pain and confusion and like the devastation of lust and things like that it can it can create beautiful things but it is itself not beautiful it makes, reminds me of the kind of like post-psychiatry movement, like R.D. Lang, people like that. Um, and even Lacan and probably Deleuze and Qatari. Like they're, yeah. they're kind of the, like the probably most uncharitable way of talking about those guys. People just kind of ignored the fact that schizophrenics and people who are mentally ill are actually suffering. They're not cool. There's... <laughs> 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 That was a reference to um, a Thomas Pynchon bit, but um, the, you know, there's a there's a part in um, one of R.D. Lang's books uh, about um, a schizophrenic woman he was quote unquote treating, and she was basically just like, 
in a darkened basement smearing the walls with her poop. And he was like, ah, yeah, that's that's just how she is. That's she's getting better. Well, she's not getting better. She doesn't need to be better. She's that's that's the way she should be. She's perfectly adapted to uh, life under like capitalism and the family and so on. And yeah, the the like what Eden said. This is not a um, enjoyable place to be. It's a hor- It's often a nightmarish city where the kid gets beaten up a lot and gets hurt a lot and people die and there's been sexual violence is everywhere in this thing it's a major part of the plot there's almost this i mean one possible interpretation of what has happened to blona is there was a something a bit like the tulsa um race riots so something there was a the girl in chapter three um uh, something richards uh june 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 richards so a, a family that the kid finds himself as kind of the like servant or helpmeet for um, may have been raped by a guy named George Harrison, which is also named the guy from the Beatles, who was like one of the most famous people in the world when this book was being written. Um, and that may have set off a race riot. And that may be why the some way of the, um, the city having come apart uh, obviously, you're not going to ever find out what what it really was, but that's not as we've mentioned. That's kind of not the point. I think that actually opens up another avenue of discussion about Del Grand, which we've alluded to several times, and that is the role of sexuality in this book. I mean, this is not. We made fun of it because basically, to say Delaney is to say sex in literature. Um, all of his books feature either romance or outright sexual intercourse. One of the most famous examples, which actually has parallels with Dahlgren as well, is the Einstein intersection. And it is famous because it was written in 67 and features a third gender um, and features potentially trans characters. Um, That book by the way, where the protagonist is also called The Kid, and that is the um, parallel to Delgren. Um, and others of, of Delaney's uh, works, you know, heavily focus on sexual intercourse and gender and so on, which is kind of rare. I mean, you could even make a, a harsher critique that a lot of science fiction is sexless, right? It's very yeah. sterile, even um, puerile in many ways, right? Like infantile and, and clean of sex in the way that uh, you know, the um, I mean, the Freudian analysis would be right, like um, trying to um, ignore or deny sexuality that and then it rises up in sort of pathological ways. Like if you think about Superman, right? I, I, I don't remember where I read this or somewhere on Twitter, like in Clark and Lois, Clark Kent is like the ultimate cuck, right? Like he's constantly longing after Lois and has to see her dating other men because he can't like say, uh, I'm Superman. <laughs> like he cucks himself. Yeah, exactly. Um, but but in general, like comics, we can talk about this, the sexless nature of a lot of our comics, especially like the action comics and the superhero stuff, and how infantile they are. But with Delaney, um, there's more of um, 
adultness to it, right? Which handles sex as, as complicated things as well, by the way. Like, it's not pretty necessarily, but sometimes it is. It's not about love necessarily, but sometimes it is. It's raw and gentle and violent and soft and, you know, the complicated things which human sexuality is. And then, um, interestingly, it's also tied into, almost always in this book, into social movements and social and political occurrences, like what you just mentioned about June, um, but also in many other ways in the book. Like Delaney constantly hints that sexuality is interwoven with the political um, structures or, or societal structures that Bologna is um, structured into, whether those are the scorpions, um, whether it's the um, you know, afterwards, there's a there's a love triangle between the kid Lania and uh, Denny, who's a scorpion, and mm-hmm. and kind of um, how and that he's leads. Fifteen, and, and he's fifteen. Yeah, um, and, and kind of how that works to to break up the the gang structure of the scorpions, and and so on and so forth. Like this book is constantly making that point. By the way, interestingly that is parallel to Book of the New Sun, right, where rape and sex are, are often um, used in many ways, um, to, 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 you know, to comment on, and Delaney said, by the way, that he read Foucault, and he, he, Foucault was uh, a direct inspiration on him, this connection between power, political structure, and sex. All of which to say, when you read Delgren, some of it is supposed to make you laugh or even make you um, disgusted, but it's never just that. It's never like writing about sex for sex's sake or for shock. It is uh, a point. There is something deeper happening here on, on a literary level. There's also... So, a broadly accepted interpretation. Um, now, when I say this, I mean this in a literary sense. Um, I mention that because, thank God... Our listeners aren't dumb as fuck. Uh, we really lucked out. Good job, squad. Um, but there are people... I'm about to say something and it would make someone's... Some type of reader's ha- uh, hair stand up on the back of their neck. So it's fairly obvious that the kid is Samuel Delaney. I don't mean that textually. I don't mean like, oh, he secretly put himself in... That's... Because who cares? The kid is deliberately nameless, but... There are deliberate, this is a book of Delaney writing about his own thoughts, looking out at the world of his time. It's, it's, it's the classic 1984 trick, or is initially, uh, if I remember correctly, initially drafted and meant for publication in 1948, but it got pushed back by a year or so it, the timing didn't line up, but he's obviously talking about, he's commenting on his own time. He's not, um, sort of the weird mistake people make when they read science fiction sometimes of like oh what broad imagination and you're like no you just you just don't know how to read like you know how to string words together but you don't know why a person would write them down um one of this comes up with the chirality thing ironically um cuz Samuel Delaney was had dyslexia and dysmetria and <coughs> wrote a lot about that kind of experience in nonfiction stuff so the swapping of sides is in a certain way quite literally a mapping of how he experiences the world at times 
um, and the weird kinds of you're not sure if it's an insight or a confusion because the same mechanic can in one situation let you see a connection between things that other people don't see but everyone finds has this ring of truth but in other times what feels like the exact same event turns out to be nonsense and that sort of hits at his more sophisticated answer to that epistemological question and why it isn't a why it's a more sophisticated and in a certain way deeper form of nihilism because it's it doesn't say that nothing amounts to anything it says that nothing consistently amounts to anything the exact same thing that in one instance can be of great benefit of great psychological benefit sociological benefit political benefit can in an event that seems identical down to the letter be very destructive and bad and the logic of why did it break here may not be apparent to you um it especially knowing that it's coming from the hands of a disabled gay black writer in the 70s looking at the shape of america it the the reason why he would make a substantially more um confused and wound up novel versus a um straight white catholic um in the 80s kind of kind of makes itself immediately uh legible i think like the reason why Dahlgren and Book of the New Sun have very similar focuses, but arrive at very, very different approaches and thoughts, um, I think becomes abundantly clear when thinking in that direction. Um, certain writers are very wary to interlace that kind of autobiographical thrust, but um, thank God a writer like Delaney exists where we know for a fact, because he said it verbatim, that a huge chunk of his novels are very partially obscured autobiographical work. Hmm. Or auto-psychological, perhaps. Like, maybe they're not about yeah, the I mean, events of his life, but... Um, Sa Samuel Delaney himself um, is dyslexic. Um, and he has another, oh, dysmetria, and he was also hospitalized mm -hmm. in a mental health ward um, for a time, and has actually also um, said repeatedly that he had some sort of visions of burnt-out sections of multiple American cities, and, and that Delgren, like he actually said this in a motion of light and water, which is a collection of essays by him, that Delgren is sort of like an exposition of all of these experiences for the people who don't suffer from his uh, conditions and have seen what he's seen. So this is almost like um, a gateway or uh, a window into the way in which Delaney experiences the world. And I think in that sense, while we're um, drawing parallels, that that sense is the sense in which he is closest to Philip K. Dick, right? Yes. Who also try to use his literature to usher people in into his perception of the world, but his perception of the world was so odd and different that the books don't necessarily achieve their purpose. Like if you expect to read Dalgren 
and come out of it on the other side better understanding Delaney's um, perspective, you'll be disappointed because it, it doesn't coalesce into anything as clear as this is how I see things. Mm-hmm. Instead, it is an um, inherently futile effort, but one which is aware of its um, futility to condense um, a world perspective into a book which inherently is not big enough to do that task. What's funny is we see we see a kind of parallel here to um, <laughs> an often more um, feminized literary form of the literary autobiography, which took um, which, which had a kind of window of literary prominence from the 50s into maybe the 70s, where it's like it's written like it is creative fiction, but it's it's an autobiographical piece that you mean like autofiction. Yeah, I mentioned that because if you go to an MFA now, that's what they try to force you to write. Mm-hmm. Um, but like I've been reading this book called Sleepless Nights by Elizabeth Hardwick, um, the sort of one of the big books of that kind of era. Um, and it's that same kind of sentiment of it's written like prose poetry based around the life of someone. And it's less about trying to convey to you the facts about their life and the facts about what have happened and how they were correlated and more the role of what something like prose poetry does. I want you to feel as I feel. I want you to feel the shape of the labyrinth of my thoughts. Um, so which is a very different kind of approach to something uh, and flies in the face of another, we all read enough books, we will have all run into this thing. Women write slim, insightful books. Men write big, inscrutable books. This is a, the stupidest fucking oversimplification of the way publication calcifies um, literary movements, not the way that people actually write. Um, specifically because Dahlgren kind of sits between those two. I think ultimately, I'm not so much saying it would feel crass to say Samuel Delaney is writing in a more feminized mode because he's a gay man. If anything, I'm trying to specifically point at how those modes of gender essentializing these modes of fiction can lead to these, ultimately a really crass and frankly kind of homophobic statement that would arise out of them like that. But it does point at, if you are a good writer, regardless of your background, you will have paid attention to, because uh, these different kinds of modes, because these were reaching um, literary prominence around the same time that uh, Delaney was writing. And we know at least that Le Guin was familiar with them. Le Guin would write essays about that kind of mode and how it um, helped open up certain pathways for her. Um, and that she was in contact with Delaney. So it's not really out of bounds to think that he may have also been thinking along the lines of like, what if I, because that's one thing that we'd hinted at, but hadn't strictly said, is that Dahlgren was a pretty big modal pivot for him, given his career at the time. Um, Hogg was a substantially bigger pivot and didn't get published for 20 years um, after its writing for that reason. But he definitely had reached a point where he went, I've done a lot of stuff in this mode, but I want I want the new chapter. Yeah, that's not to say that he, his previous work was sci-fi pot boilers. 
no, no. They, they, they were, no, they were often brilliant. They were like some of the best stuff. And then he, he just hits another plateau of brilliance in Dahlgren. He, he, he hit that point that like any really great writer hits, regardless of what genre they work in. If they want, if they go, I want to write the thing that's going to blow the doors off of the literary space like not my genre space but the literary space but i'm I not abandoning my genre space i'm just gonna write something that makes you finally go i i can't ignore you anymore i think it, for me I, I mean i don't disagree with you but i think it's more interesting to highlight the continuity between Delgren and the rest of delaney's work right like <laughs> i th- at the parallels with einstein intersection are, are fascinating to me yeah because Einstein intersection, I think, is one of the most. It's funny to say it, to call it unsung, seeing that it won the Nebula <laughs> Award um, and was a finalist for the Hugo Award. But it, it, this book should be cited alongside the Stars My Destination and Highlands Drek or whatever that seems to be still popular and K Dick and all those guys. And it's not like the when I it, talk about with like big sci-fi people about the Einstein intersection, they haven't read it. It also should be cited with this book because the way that it quite literally feels like a thematic prequel. Yeah, um, but 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 I think the the differences are, you know, Einstein intersection is more actively focused on the mythology and the American mythology of the story. Right, it's a lot to do with um, Orpheus and um, the, the Billy the Kid, of course. And and other the Minotaur and other sorts of of um, mythological characters, where those ideas are more submerged in Dalgren and hinted at, where in the Einstein intersection they are more um, blatant. So in many ways, Dalgren is sort of like a more subtle um, version of it. But I, but I don't think that the Einstein intersection is the only parallel within Delaney's um, um, bibliography. I think there's also a lot to be said about um, Babel 17 and Dahlgren, right? Babel 17 being, I don't know if the first, but certainly way before arrival, um, the whole Sapir-Whorf hypothesis, language influences, thoughts and perception, um, that his book about, about that published in 66, which has a lot of the same, it's sci-fi and it's different and it's like a precursor to cyberpunk and stuff like that, but it has a lot of the same ideas of the self, shattered perceptions, consciousness, and so on. By the way, Babel 17 was always intended to be published as a single novel with Empire Star, and there's a lot of chirality between those books, um, and they're supposed to sort of like um, loop um, each other. By the way, Babel 17 was cited by um, a lot of writers as direct influence um, so it, it, it's almost like, I'm not, I wouldn't say it's more impactful than Delgren. Delgren sold over like a million copies. It's one of the biggest <laughs> bestsellers in the history of science fiction. But um, Which is a it, very weird thing when you think about it. Yeah. yeah <laughs> I think at some point it became like a, a must-read book, kind of like uh, the books that we already cited, like Infinite Jest and Gravity's Rainbow, um, or maybe even more appropriately... Um, Gödelescher Bach and um, House of Leaves, right? That kind of, you know. It's yeah, it's definitely a. Um, this is kind of how I first discovered it. This is it's a precocious young boy book. Yeah, you, yeah. You, 
it's in a, I, I think I first found it in a like a big book of cult novels where you get all those ones, Gravity's Rainbow and all that stuff, and and then um, obviously Kurt Vonnegut and people like that. And same yeah. span that I found Illuminatus and oh yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. For sure. yeah There's so, sort of like oh, these are books that get clowned on um, by certain types of people, and I only pray. <laughs> that I, I only pray that all of our listeners are past that window. We talked about it a little bit on the House of Leaves. I was going to say, I was going to say when we did House of Leaves. There is there is that sense of, because it, we're also talking as fans of heavy metal. Like, um, I think all three of us like Ghost. I know all of us I, like Metallica. I, I, like I can appreciate Ghost. I don't okay. like listening to them as such. In this okay, yeah. then I'll go with Metallica, because if you have anything negative to say about the first four Metallica records, I will kill you. Um, just fact. That's for anyone, by the way. That's open, open offer. I will. If you want to end your life, just tell me negative things about those first four records. But you go through a window and you get deeper into heavy metal. You're like, nah, fuck them. You know, I, I'm into like um, uh, Palace of Worms or... Um, uh, like Encina Thrak, or you know, you, you pull out some some real obscure names. Um, but then you get to a point where you're, you look back and you go, like, well, I never would have gotten into any of this really obscure stuff that I find a lot of meaning from that I do sincerely like. Like putting aside the veil of juvenile hipsterism, which is very real, but everyone does it. Like you don't need to feel shitty for having done it. Everyone does it as part of the. But- early adult defining a personhood you get past it and you go no i do actually love and treasure those but dalgren dalgren is not metallica dalgren is gentle giant yes dalgren is a weird ass fucking record dalgren is putting on the power and the glory for your friends uh at a party when you're 16 and going oh you think you like weird shit (laughs) follow this bitch yeah and then a lot of really awful people like that Twitter meme of like uh, the worst person you know has a good opinion. Um, uh-huh. The worst kind of people love it and that makes you hate it and you stop listening to Gentle Giant because all the other people who listen to it are assholes. But then 10 years or 15 years later, you're like, fuck all those guys. I actually like this album or this book and I don't have to be an asshole about it in yeah, order well, to like it. I wanted to point out what would if um, we read Infinite Jest. I'm, we I'm would all hate it, I think. I hate Infinite Jest. I hate it so much. <laughs> I hate it. Yeah, it's, it's, so... it's been a long time. I, I remember reading it on the um, lawn <laughs> of my college, very prominently trying to like make people know that I've reading this huge book. Yeah, um, <laughs> that's say... that's the one book like this that I do actually hate. <laughs> yeah, I wanted to say one last thing about Babel Seventeen, and then maybe we can do music and, and wrap this up, oh, yeah. but. Uh, Babel 17, I already mentioned it has like hierarchy with Empire style, but uh, it also has an interesting, um, well, not hierarchy, but like a parallel thing. It was a joint winner of the Nebula in 67. And the book that won alongside it is Flowers for Algernon, um, aka one of the best science fiction books ever written. phenomenal phenomenal book that if you haven't read because it like i know it it gets taught in high schools in america um and if you think it's bad or something because most of the books you read they're all bad it's not it's actually really good and flowers for algernon is like one of the most delaney-esque books that weren't written by delaney in that it deals with a a, a person with um 
you know, not just mental illness, but also um, cognitive um, dysfunction and special needs and stuff like that. And, and, and that deals a lot with intelligence and the lie of superiority and working class, like Delaney's books often do, um, like Stars in My Pocket, but also um, Dalgren. And it's really interesting that they both won um, the Nebula in 66 which is just uh, 67 sorry um no 66 yeah i think it's really interesting and says a lot about like the moment in which delaney worked um yeah so it's just like a piece of trivia that i really like about um babel 17 i think dahlgren sometimes gets smeared by a certain type of reader in books like dahlgren so not just dahlgren as a big book and this is a, a derogatory when they say it, because big books are lazily drafted, lazily edited. They're big for big sake. You're swinging your literary dick around. You're not trying to blah, 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 blah. But this, I think, is a real... Uh, I think that is true of Infinite Jest, um, which is um, <laughs> uh, funny. But I think that Dahlgren is better slotted under a different kind of rubric, which um, fans of art will recognize this one. Um, an interesting book. Um, things become, this is sort of the rubric that it's almost like the mature version of hipsterism, if I'm honest, in like a jokey way, of you hear that a, a band is putting out a triple album and they've never done that before. That's interesting. Maybe it's going to be great. Maybe it's not going to be great, but it's interesting. They're, they're, they're trying something that is bold, but also maybe bold for this other person is I'm going to write an 80-page novel. I normally write book stoppers, but I want to write something slim, compact, and impactful. That's interesting, because you're you're taking... it. It's a bold and just a new kind of direction to kind of take. Um, that, I think, is also, in general, not just about Dahlgren, but about art in general. That's a much healthier way to look at these things and a way to cut through both the hype and also... It's become increasingly um, unbearable to me. The unfucking believable level of cynicism that you'll especially find in any kind of like online art community that if someone's excited for something, they've bought into the hype or something or they're deluded. We saw this with Chatpile. Credit to Gareth. Gareth turned me on to Chatpile a couple years ago with their EPs. Like they had sort of just come out. So we've been on that train for a bit. And then seeing people, other people get legitimately excited for that debut, which was awesome, get responded to with like intense cynicism because it's like, oh, you're just listening to the hot new thing. And it's like, yeah, there's nothing wrong with that. If they if they tuned into it because it's the hot new thing and then they earnestly fell in love with it, that's why we do that is to turn people on to things I might love. <laughs> and likewise, the, the, the sort of healthy way to do that is like, Dahlgren being this big formal shift for Delaney, but not a thematic shift. The thematics are all still the same. He just wanted to approach them in a different way. That's interesting. The fact yeah. that it's 900 pages long is a fluke that comes out of that because he, he about 100 or 200 pages into the book, you'll realize he tapped a vein and you kind of get why it's long for the same reason that In Search of Lost Time is long. Proust was on one. 
and he knew he was on one and he's like i'm not turning the faucet off till the water runs out um but i mean it's it's long like ulysses is long yeah kind of it kind of has to be if you're gonna it doesn't make it better or worse than a book that is short because it needed to be short it just is long so i'm gonna look before we end I want to talk about Ulysses in this one because it's oh hell yeah (laughs) people people call this the Ulysses of science fiction people uh, a lot of I think that was William Gibson in his um, forward to the vintage edition maybe I I think yeah yeah, it was it was it was yeah okay I I read that year so long ago it's just become part of my brain Uh, Dahlgren the Ulysses of science fiction Um, okay is it (laughs) like Yes, it's um, it's big. It's difficult. It's mod- high modernist in places. It's leading postmodernism in places. It's you experiments in multiple forms. It's um, can often go between like kitchen sink realism to psychological um, just riffing on what a brain does. But is it is it Ulysses? Is it anything like Joyce? No. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, it's 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 an unfair comparison for both Joyce and whoever's being compared. Like that's, I mean, that's I, I why wanna, literary people don't do that. Like, I mean, I want to go a step further and say that it's part of the point of Dahlgren, I wouldn't call it like an anti-Ulysses, but it definitely strikes out this idea of, you know, this parallel that Ulysses and other books in in the genre draw between a story and a city and walking in a place um, and how you read a book. And Dalgren is like, yeah. have you ever walked in a city? What What is like ordered about walking in a city? A city is a mess. <laughs> by comparison, a book is a mess or can be a mess. It, it should like, you know, when you walk in a city, it's not like um, experiences present themselves to you in a sort of order. You're walking around Things are happening to you. Things happen unexpectedly. People burst into your field of vision. Streets take directions that you hadn't expected them to take. You discover new things, even about a city you supposedly know. And that is how a book tied to a city should be like. Unlike Ulysses, which, yeah, is sprawling and elusive and um, subtle in many ways, but it's still... um, tied to Dublin, right? And tied to yeah. the paths that the protagonist takes inside of Dublin. Um, and, and also, of course, alluding to the Odyssey where things um, follow things. Whereas in Dalgren, things don't follow things. Some things just happen. Are you happen. saying um, that uh, Ulysses is arborescent while Dalgren is um, rhizomatic? Well, my name is not Langdon. <laughs> if it Langdon, would Langdon, you say that Ulysses is arborescent Well. um Dahlgren is rhizomatic. Uh, yeah, no, yeah, I'd say that. I've been avoiding saying that it's a rhizomatic <laughs> the whole time because I felt that, uh, yeah. The loose. All right, we've done it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We've we um, done it several yeah. times. I, I, I want, I'm cutting you off. No, I have one last thought. I'm cutting you off. No. My fi- uh, the, the final thought is one of the reasons why Joyce as a writer or Ulysses slash Finnegan's Wake gets propped up as maybe the greatest thing that's ever been written is not just because of its own qualities, but because 
in a lot of cases, um, Delaney talked about this with the relation to Ulysses and this, that he didn't draw from Ulysses, uh, except in the thought of like, oh, you can use certain things to structure your writing. And then you, uh, but that sort of hits at it as you hear so many stories of writers, they pick up something like Ulysses or Finnegan's Wake, they read it, they put it down, and then they write the best thing they've ever written in their careers. And normally they're not super similar to Ulysses or Finnegan's Wake. It's just that kind of lightning bolt thing that certain art can do where you go, I didn't fucking know you could do that. I'm going to go do a bunch of stuff that people didn't know you could do. And it's like that sort of like inspirational spark that is different from the best book you will read as a reader. Um, it's the same thing happens like in the jazz world a lot where there's a record where if you're not a jazz player, you'd go, I don't get why anyone would love this. And all jazz players are like, nah, man, nah, I heard him hit that a flat. And then I went and I invented Afrobeat. And you're like, that doesn't make sense to me, but that's cool. Thanks. <laughs> I want to end, um, by reading, uh, a section, uh, a few sentences from Dalgren, because I think, this is a cliche. We always say this when we talk about these kinds of books, but it has to be said. Beyond all this stuff, it's also written very well. Oh, God, yeah. Um, like sentence to sentence. So I, I want to end by just reading a few lines from it because it really is written very well. Um, this parched evening seasons the night with remembrance of rain. Very few suspect the existence of the city. It is as if not only the media but the laws of perspective themselves have redesigned knowledge and perception to pass it by. Rumor says there is practically no power here. Neither television cameras nor on-the-spot broadcasts function. That such a catastrophe as this should be opaque and therefore dull to the electric nation. It is a city of inner discordances and retinal distortions. Which is just very good. Um, Dalton um, Electric Nation sounds straight out of hell, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. Yeah. And also, I wonder if it's like a, a reference to Sing the Body Electric, um, perhaps. It also um, feels like a direct prequel to the, the the television was tuned to the color of a dead. Uh, yeah. Or the sky was tuned to the... Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 The, the sky um, was the color of the TV uh, tuned to a dead channel. I was like, how, in the, how am I fucking this lineup so bad? <laughs> Um, so what are we listening to? Uh, should we do gel? Yes. Hell yeah. That's, that fits the vibe of things that are hyped, but, uh, a slap that I was going to say, yeah. Yeah. This, this, uh, this year's chat pile. Um, they've come out to the underground. I, I, I first saw them on, uh, oh shit. What's his name? Um, the guy who does all the really amazing videos of like hardcore bands playing in like five, six. Yeah. Brilliant. Brilliant guy. Yeah, I first saw them on there years ago, and um, yeah, just a really brilliant hardcore band, um, just straight up hardcore, no other stuff in there. Um, they're playing with um, screaming females, like supporting them on on a few shows, and I love screaming. That's awesome. Screaming males. Yeah, they're they're a um, great group. Yeah, uh, possibly one of the best guitarists in modern American rock is Miss uh, Melissa Paternoster. Um, so Jill, uh, they've got a new album coming out later this year. Um, the song we're going to play is called Attainable. It's like a minute, 30 seconds long, because hardcore. 
Um, they've had not many releases. They're quite a new band. Um, but they're just really good, really powerful, really just fun. It's not people. People like to slag on them because they have a sharp sense of aesthetics. But um, people like to ignore that early punk and early hardcore had a fucking sharp sense of aesthetics. It's you know you're trying to present a whole new map of a way to live, not just not just a song. Yeah, there's a reason that people have a black flag tattoo. Yeah, because yeah. that's there's four lines. Those would those are brilliant four lines. Yeah. Yeah, so shut up if you don't like aesthetics. There are so many great bands with brilliant uh, sense of aesthetics, like like Candy. Yeah, Candy's another really... Hardcore is in such a fucking good spot right now. Yeah, it was was not great for a while. Yeah. (laughs) I've kind of rediscovered, oh wait, this, like, being loud and quick can be fun. Who knew? Let's make big, dumb rock records. Yeah. But so here's gel and we're going to be back real soon. Um, I think, I think uh, the next show we'll do is on that post fiction book. And I I think we're going to go, Oh shit. Now we understand um, uh, Dahlgren. (laughs) (laughs) um, We need to do deep wheel Arcadia. We do. Yeah. Um, So yeah, we're going to, we'll sort it out, but um, we keep bouncing around on whether we're going to cover the Alan Moore short story book. We, (laughs) every time we touch base on it, we have a different answer (laughs) internally. (laughs) You guys can do it. I can't be bothered with him anymore. I can follow that. Yeah. I love him, but I can follow that. (laughs) Joe, we need need to do uh, Grant Morrison's book as well. Yeah, that's right. Uh, I I have a guest lined up for that. Swag. uh, and she like she really likes Doctor Who, so we can talk about that as well. Uh, <laughs> uh, here's Jill. Thank you for listening.